thank you guys. This is um, uh, as we're jumping into um, a new section of Daniel um, in Daniel chapter 7. And by the way, uh, I think it was last week or the week before something Paul referenced after sitting through the first service and realizing, oh, that's why we sang that song. Like that's, now you see those connections being made. I hope you do that as well. I hope you see um, all the intentionality um, between all, how all of the worship that we engage in on Sunday morning, giving, singing praises, uh, greeting one another, learning and listening, um, all of those are intertwined. And uh, usually intentionally, oh no, so let me rephrase, always intentionally, sometimes intentionally by us. Um, the Holy Spirit does it a lot of times without our permission, but uh, uh, it's pretty amazing. So um, I want to... Uh, Read for to uh, read to you, or let's look at Daniel chapter seven, verse one. That's as far as we'll get um, today, and and maybe next week too. But certainly today, Daniel chapter seven, verse one, shows us why we've got a big task ahead of us for the next few chapters. <clears throat> In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dreams and told the sum of the matter. Okay, so. Clearly, we're starting something really new here. First thing, you notice we're traveling back in time. Um, this is now, this is something that happened way back around Daniel chapter 3, um, Daniel chapter 4. That, that type of, it happened back then, but Daniel's just now revealing it to us. We're also seeing that now Daniel's not interpreting other people's dreams. He's now having dreams. So this is going to feel very different as well. Um, the dreams are going to come about in a way connected to um, what we call apocryphal literature. Um, apocryphal, meaning revealed, the, the meaning it's, it's now being displayed to us. So if you imagine, if you will, apocryphal literature are those moments in history, in Scripture, when God slides the veil aside and lets us see a little deeper into reality. It can include insights into who He is. It can include insights into who we are. It can include insights into the future. It can include insights into what He's doing or what He's, um, what he's accomplishing. Um, all kinds of different things going on in this. What I want to do is take a, take a few minutes here, and this is one of our kind of hard and fast rules is we don't do videos longer than about four minutes. But I'm gonna, I want to show you guys a video that's more like eight minutes, but it's, it gives the... It's going, to, it's going to do a good job. This is the Bible Project, and if you're not familiar with them, again, one of the reasons we do stuff like this, show videos and stuff at times, reference different materials, is because we want you to be engaging in study outside of, you know, a couple hours on Sunday morning. Um, we think that the Christian life is much more saturated than that, and so the assumption is you're going to be studying and learning all along, and so we, we, when we have a good resource to throw your way, um, and the Bible Project does really good work, in, in especially in regards to stuff like this. So this is their summary of the entire book of Daniel. They're going to do it in about eight minutes, and it's going to help you understand how these pieces fit together as we're jumping into Daniel chapter 7. So, guys? The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. 
The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. Choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts. And like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an 
an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire, and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus's empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. 
It's a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. How about that? <clears throat> so that should give you a good, I know it's a little long, hopefully, I don't think anybody's bored. No, no, not twice. Once is, <laughs> once is plenty. Um, okay, so as we're, as we're diving into this second section of the book of Daniel, one, I want you to have that overview. And by the way, the Bible Project material is totally free. Um, now, there's a couple of things. You also, as a member of our church, have access to right now media which is totally free to you. The church pays for a, a membership, and there's, I don't know, thousands of different resources, whole Bible studies, all kinds of stuff. If you have questions about that, ask. Um, but this is, you go to YouTube and type in Bible Project, and all their material is there. And it's, it's good. It's good stuff. It's, it's a great way to, um, to enrich your study outside of Sundays and outside of Bible study meetings and that kind of stuff. I, I really want to encourage you to continue to grow and and, uh, and engage in different ways with God's Word outside of Sunday mornings. Um, that's important. Now, again, I referenced apocryphal literature, so I'm going to give you the picture that I always give. And so some of you are going like, here comes the love letter analogy again. You're right, here it comes. So the love letter analogy that I give for understanding when we study Scripture, why we have to know what we're studying, um, is that if you're going to make interpretation decisions and then application decisions from what you read, you need to know what you're reading. <laughs> so the analogy that I use is this, the picture of me coming home and finding a love letter that Ginger has left for me, a love poem that she's left for me. And the love poem, um, as I'm looking at it and saying, how does, what does this say about her love for me? And the first thing is sandwich meat. And then it says um, dishwasher detergent. And then it says um, toilet paper and eggs and milk. And, and I'm going, what, what does dishwasher detergent say? Like, what is she saying about her love for me with dishwasher detergent. Well, I'm going to come up with some really funky interpretations, no matter what I do, no matter how good a job I do with everything else, because it's not a love poem, it's a grocery list. And so it's important that we understand what we're reading. And when you're engaging with apocryphal literature, you come at it a little bit differently. It, it comes to us a little bit differently than historical literature, or even than poetic literature. Um, it's going to have pictures and analogies and, and visions because that's what, for example, in this case, Daniel is having. He's having dreams and visions that have to be interpreted. Strangely, usually it's Daniel doing the interpretation up until now. Now Daniel's going to need help with interpretation. We're blessed in that unlike the book of Revelation, um, we have an interpreter here in the book of Daniel who shows up multiple times to interpret things and to give a relatively clear picture. So I want to I talk just for a second. If you did not hear or were not here for or did not watch Chris Sherrod's um, talk about prophecy last week, I really want to encourage you to go back and do that. Um, some of that lays a groundwork for what I'm going to be talking about today. Um, uh, but this idea that there's some, a couple of misconceptions I want to touch on about prophecy that we often engage with at the church one is that the main value of prophecy, or the way you're supposed to study prophecy, or the way you're supposed to engage with this, is that it's primarily about the future as reported in the daily newspaper. Okay? Now, for those of you who don't know, a newspaper is a piece, a bunch of paper that used to come to your house every day, 
and you would, you would read it, and it would be about whatever the editors thought you needed to know um, that was going on in the world today. Um, or, as I said it in a very jaded sense, this was not my home, by the way, but it was all the TV shows, newspapers are how dads avoided their family before there were iPhones. Um, so that's the, that's, sorry, that sounds really harsh. I know, I said it the first service, I was like, ouch, that sounds meaner than it was meant to be. But, okay, anyway, so that was, those were newspapers. And, and that was um, what we would do, you, those of you who are old enough remember in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s especially, that what you would do is you would read the Bible with one hand and then you would have the newspaper or you'd have a magazines, the, the daily magazines or the weekly magazines out, and you would compare what the Bible says and you'd be looking for this fulfillment uh, back and forth between these two of them to communicate with each other. Okay, um, I did that. And there's, there's, there is some value in engaging with the way prophecy is being lived out in our life today. But it often leads to all types of ridiculous errors and mistakes that we can make because we end up cramming the newspaper into the Bible or trying to make the Bible, trying to expand and stretch out what the Bible says to fit with what's going on in the newspapers, and we make a lot of mistakes. That's when we get into almost this this pagan version of prophecy, which I'll get to in just a second. Um, Before that, to comment, I was really into prophecy stuff uh, in the 80s and even early 90s, and I loved studying it, and I loved teaching about it, and I was fascinated by all of that. And so I did that kind of stuff, and I have um, tons of books from that era about prophecy. Now, most of them are boxed up in different places scattered around the world, and I'll probably never find them now. But um, uh, I found a couple of them in the office over there that I had. And, and so you remember, any of you old enough to remember um, uh, that in 1987, I think, or maybe even in 88, the book came out, 88 Reasons Why Christ is Going to Return in 1988? Any of you guys remember that? I mean, it was a best-selling book. It was, I mean, Christians were buying it. It was going off the shelf like crazy. Um, 89 Reasons Why He's Going to Return in 89 did not sell nearly as well. Um, and then by the time he got to 90 Reasons Why God's Going to Return in 90, no one was listening. So, um, and there were, there were lots of responses to that. But that's the mistake. Again, and all of these authors, including the one I'm going to read from here, they, they put in their books. They're not, they're not fools. They'll put in their books like, listen, I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing anything. I'm not Jesus Christ. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not God's Word. Um, and this one, uh, Salem Kerbin, who was, uh, or Kerbin, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he was very popular in the 70s, and, uh, and everybody was reading his books, and he put out a whole bunch of these. My favorite one is the, the Rapture book, Reading Case of the Rapture. Christians were supposed to buy it and leave it on their tables so that when they were raptured away, when people came into their house looking for them, they would find this book that says, if I'm gone, read this. And it was him explaining what had, what had happened. That's pretty clever, Right. Uh, I remember years ago, there was a, I'm sure it still exists, Paul, I don't know if you remember the, um, that you could actually pay a group of atheists to take care of your pets in case of the rapture. Do you remember that? That was, I was like, what a brilliant business model. They're like, we promise we will not convert to Christianity. We promise we will stay atheists. Like they had, you were signing, guaranteeing that, and we'll take care of your pets if you get raptured. Um, And by the way, they were, they were people doing it. Like that was, anyway, so, but, but uh, Salem had a, section of this book, he had a little section that was actually sealed. Pretty clever, right? It was actually a seal. So you had to break the seal yourself in order to read the prophecies and predictions that he had. Um, and so you end up with all kinds of, uh, of really funny stuff. And I'm not saying it's a prophecy from God. These were just his predictions. But you end up predicting things like Queen Elizabeth will step down from her throne by 1975. <laughs> and Prince Charles, who is the king, will offer to give up his throne before 1980. Um, the penny, 
be removed from circulation by 1985. The would be the leading source of execution in America by the mid-70s. You get all kinds of stuff predicted like this when you're trying to make prophecy in the newspaper communicate easily with each other. Okay? Now, again, there are scenes in which we see the ripple prophecy played out in the news. But we've got to be careful making those two things always communicate with each other. That's why my favorite prophecy book became 99 Reasons Why No One Knows When Christ Will Return, um, which was obviously in response to the 88 reasons. And this is more healthy a, a, a assertion engaging with the newspaper. But often, often Christians aren't for great reasons because we will, we will take what we want things to say and make it say that in order to fit. And I'm here often on social media, hearing it in our home, like, surely Jesus is coming back. For us to recognize, one, yep, He is. It may or may not come around. Um, it's, there have been every generation of humans faces awful, horrific, unthinkable events. Every single generation of humans has done that. Every generation of Christians has to engage with that. And I'm going to talk about how kind of what the Bible Project guys were saying, that there's a sense in which all of these different interpretations are right. And how that, how that plays out. So I'm going I'm to build toward that explanation. What prophecy is, as Chris said last week, um, Chris Sherrod said last week, is, um, I don't sound like I'm referring to myself the third person, that's always funny. As Sherrod said last week, is, is that prophecy is really about foretelling. It may involve foretelling as well. It's about a proclamation. This is the mind of God. That's what prophecy is. I'm telling you what God's thinking. And God has given me this insight through His Word, through a special, in this case, through an apocryphal vision or a dream, or through some other insight. And they give that explanation. It can be a ministry, it can be a gifting, um, whatever those happen to be. But the idea is that there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit would speak prophetically, maybe through any of us in our times of teaching. This is what God's Word what is revealing to us about God's mind, about what God is doing. And so we, we dig into this, someone who declares the mind of God. So maybe you grew up, again, there are always new versions of this, but maybe one of the most famous throughout all of history, uh, other prophets, is a guy you may have heard of named Nostradamus. Any, any, anybody read Nostradamus back in the day? I don't even know if anyone knows who he is anymore. Um, but man, he was, he, was, he was the bomb for a while, right? I mean, everyone was reading him and talking about him. So just for fun, I want to show you the difference. So remember the book of Daniel is literally dated by secular historians to be well after when the Bible says it happened for no other reason than the specificity and accuracy of its prophecies. So the book of Daniel is going to prophesy things that, that when they happen, it is blindingly clear that this is a fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, that may be fulfilled again and again and again, as we'll talk about in a minute, but it's blindingly clear. This is a fulfillment of that, unlike Nostradamus. So let's look at a couple of his most obvious predictions that his followers all say obviously clearly. So let's throw the first one up there. So there you go. He, he wrote in these little quatrains, and people read them, and then they... Obvi I mean, so the year 1999, seven months, from the sky will come the great king of terror to resuscitate the great king of the Mongols before and after Mars reigns by good luck. So, obviously, you know what that is. You want to look at the next one? No? Not obvious to you? Obviously, this is when JFK Jr. and his wife had a plane crash in July of 1999. 
right? Yeah, no. Okay, next. I mean, you, you read it and you go, wait, what about the Mongol thing? What, what was the... Just move along. It says seven, and it has 1999, and it has something in the sky. Obviously, that's what that is. When you're having to twist what happened in history or twist the thing to make it fit, these are some, by the way, these are some of the most clear. These are the examples used by the big fans of Nostradamus to show you just how obvious his stuff is. This may be the most obvious one. From the human flock, nine will be sent away, separated from judgment and counsel. Their fate will be sealed on departure. Kappa, Theta, Lambda, the banished dead heir. heir. Anybody? I actually think some people, everyone, we had someone in the first service shout out what this one is supposed to be. Sometimes you can look at this one. David Acock thought it was the nine rings of man, the Nazgul, for the Lord of the Rings people, but that's not right. That's not correct. Obviously, this is Space Shuttle Challenger, right? Right? You have this explosion. Obviously, their fate is sealed. Separate, I don't know what's separated from judgment and counsel. I mean, they're dead. I guess that's, in a sense, separated from they blew up. Um, one of the best things about this is that one of the builders, is the, one of the O-ring engineers who warned them was named Morton Thiokol, T-H-I-O-K-O-L. So obviously the fact that T-H-I-T-A is in the last line is a reference to him. I mean, it's not. Like, no, that's, it would say, if it was a prophetic message, it would say his name, not something that's not really that much like his name. It just has a T-H in it. But, but this is the example. So when you think about secular prophecies... This is the best out there, is Nostradamus. And by the way, these are translated into English, and even the translations are clearly bent towards answers at some places um, after these things were discovered. That's not what we're talking about. When we go through Daniel and we go through some of these prophecies, I mean, just think back to the, to the statue that we've already studied. Or, or think back to the prophecy the day of, today, Belshazzar, you will be defeated, which must have seemed absurd to Belteshazzar in that moment, he's got these giant walls. But we know that at the time Daniel was proclaiming that as God's message, that the Persians and the Medes may have already been in the city. It, when we see them very specifically lived out, and so we're going we're gonna to see some of that as we go through. Don't, don't think that that's what's going on. If it feels that way, then I'm doing something wrong or somebody's doing something wrong. Many of the, We know these because many of the prophecies that we see in the Bible, and Chris mentioned this last week, They've already happened. The fulfillment has already happened. Now, again, they may be fulfilled again, but a fulfillment has already happened of these. This isn't some... Uh, we, we know how specific they can be because of that. Like he said about all the different prophecies about Jesus and the odds of these prophecies being fulfilled in any way about one person, being in the thousands upon thousands of the chances of it. So when we see these combinations play out, it's not that we're, we're bending and twisting Scripture or that we're, we're trying to cram history into it. It's that if you know history, when you read these, you go, well, that's this. Obviously, this has happened. And then you, with some of them, you go, but wait, this last one hasn't happened yet. Right. So you got, you got partial fulfillment working its way up. I want to give you an example. Um, let's look at this one. This concept of what I'm going to be calling the birth pangs. So my, one of my professors uh, used this term all through about prophecy, and, and we're going to come back to it. So how do these happen before, and then they have, seem to happen again, and it seems like some people think they're going to happen in the future. Well, maybe all of those are correct. So 
Let me give you this, this, where this word comes from, where this concept comes from. It's Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, which is a prophetic passage. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So those of you, I remember well um, when we were in the hospital and Ginger was going to be giving birth to Mark. Um, and so as she's going through labor and there was this little monitor, and I don't even know what this monitor was checking. I just knew that as the number got higher, she got angrier. Okay. And so, and so she got more and more frustrated and was in more and more pain. And, and so I would watch this monitor um, and so would you, sometimes like she would fall asleep between contract, contractions. And so as, the, as that number would, would climb up, I would be watching that number and realizing like she wakes up. At, I remember there was a number like she's about to wake up. Um, she's about to suddenly be very awake when it hits a certain number. And sure enough, that's how that would happen. And so there would be the contractions and there would be um, all the trauma and the experience of that contraction. And then it would, then it would die away. And go off, and typically, especially near the end, she would immediately fall back asleep, and and then it would we would wait for the next one. And this same thing continued to happen, typically a little more intense than the last time, and then eventually there was a last one, and then there was a baby, right? This is the picture of prophecy that, as we talk about it, I'm going to be embracing. That these things they're prophesied, and then they happen, and then. It, Again, and then, they, they, then they're not happening, and then they're going to happen again, something very similar, maybe more intense. And then they're not going to happen, and then they're going to happen. And it's going to build, and it may be more intense, it may be more specific. And this is going to continue to happen. In some cases, probably that the baby has been born, so to speak, of the prophecy, like the coming of Jesus the first time. Most of those prophecies have been fulfilled about Jesus. But there's still a bunch that haven't been fulfilled yet. So there's yet again, it's going to happen again, and then we're going to have a second coming of Jesus. But all of these are going to play out like that. We were talking about this on the podcast, and Paul mentioned he had a professor who had written a book. And the, in the book, he, he, um, he presents like, this is the fulfillment of these prophecies right here. I can find it. I'll show you how it fits, and here it fits. But so does this. This event in history also fulfills that prophecy pretty amazingly. But so does this. This is the same idea, the way that this is played out. And we're going to see this as we go through this. So have this in your mind, this idea of the birth pains. Um, we look at, let's look at a specific prophetic warning in this light. It's the destruction of Judea. Sometimes prophecies are about the present. Sometimes they're about the past for us. Sometimes they're about the future. The, the, this version of prophecy, the foretelling version. In Jeremiah 31, 15 a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, in this case, God is actually referencing something that's already happened. He's referencing that this lamentation has already happened. And in fact, the next few verses are God saying, I will comfort you in this. I will bring your children back. But this destruction, the exile of the Jewish people, the destruction of the, of the Jewish people from, these, from Judea, this, the voice is heard. It's Rachel weeping. So Rachel was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. 
She represents an entire region of Israel here. They reference this region now as being under the concept of Rachel, where the enemies had attacked and defeated. She can't find her children. They're either dead or they've been exiled. And so she weeps for their loss. Is Rachel going to weep again? Was this prophecy fulfilled during the exile? The first one? The second one? The third one? Again and again, yes. Was it fulfilled again at other times when the Greeks came in and destroyed this region and conquered the people? I think that's another fulfillment of Rachel's looking around for her children, not finding them. We actually know of another fulfillment. It's in Matthew chapter 2 when this passage is referenced, this very same passage is referenced, when all of the children under the age of two are slaughtered in Bethlehem by Herod. Rachel looks around for her children and she can't find them because they are no more, and she weeps. This is an example of of the fulfillment of this. Is it going to happen again? Let's know what Jesus teaches here in Luke chapter 21, which is the sister passage to Matthew 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. So Jesus is now predicting that yet again the region of Judea will be decimated. When you see the armies coming, flee. When the Romans showed up in the A.D. 60s, Titus showed up with four Roman armies, the 5th, the 11th, the 14th, and the 10th, and they besieged the city of Jerusalem for four months. It was awful. Ended in A.D. 70 with essentially the burning of the city, the utter destruction of the temple and everything on the Temple Mount. But there weren't a lot of Christians there in the city when the Romans showed up. You know why? Because when the Christians saw the armies gathering, they headed for the hills. They ran for the mountains, just like Jesus told them to do. So there you go, yet another fulfillment, this destruction of God's city and this region of people. It's fulfilled again. Did Rachel weep then? I think so. But here's what's wild. Armies have besieged Jerusalem, just like Jesus warned. Armies have besieged Jerusalem, again, around A.D. 70. In 614, in 637, in 1099, in 1187, in 1244, in 1917, and in 1948. Rachel's wept a lot. As, God, as Jesus' very prophecy, when you see the armies gathering, no, these are birth pains. It's not the last time. Eventually, there'll be a last one. There'll be an army that gathers around Judea, and it'll be the last time that that happens. Is it, is it this time? Is it this next time when it happens? I guess we'll see. But it's going to happen, and it's going to happen, and it's going to happen. This prophecy shows God's epic pattern in human history. The epic pattern is this. Man fails. God redeems. This is the epic pattern over and over again. Man fails. Men are like beasts. The more we trust in ourselves, the more beast-like our leaders become. The more beast-like we become. Think about as you engage with what we're looking at our country today. As human beings are looking to themselves more and more and more, what do you see? As we see laws passed that are absolutely immoral, as we see the behavior of people And it doesn't seem to matter. What's wild is you even start hearing Christians speak more and more like beasts. 
I'm so proud. I'll tell you guys, I've told you guys this multiple through this whole process. I have been so proud as a Christian to watch godly leaders, men and women of, of every ethnic background, step up and in peace teach Scripture about Jesus' peace that we get to lead in regards to this. Because submitting to God is to find His redemption there. But every other voice, it sounds like they're just screaming and clawing and howling like beasts. And for us as Christians to get to say, whoa, whoa, we don't have to live as beasts anymore. We have a Redeemer. That's the exact picture that man fails and God redeems. That we, as John read earlier, we are His ambassadors and we get to be part of this ministry of reconciliation. We, this, it's vital. I don't know if it's more vital than ever. It seems, you always want to say that, but I think every generation of Christians have said that, right? It, it's more important than ever. But think of how important it is now that we maintain the lights of the church, that we maintain that we are a city on a hill, that we maintain the truth of Scripture. We don't walk away from that. Otherwise, when people in the world begin to realize this well is empty, I need to find something different. When they come to the church, they need to find something different. They don't need to find the same thing they found out there. They need to find something different in us. By the way, and I don't mean the building of the church. Get that out of your head. I mean when they interact with us as the church. That they run into us and they go, this is different. This isn't what... Now, they may not like it. I'm listening to a, an excellent speaker right now. I'm, I'm also very proud right now. We're seeing a numerous more, and I'm sure many will struggle and many may fall, but we're seeing more in the, in the community of same-sex attraction who are Christians stepping forward and submitting themselves to Scripture and leading others to engage in that in a, in a right, healthy, godly way. What do I do with this and how do I follow God in this? And I was listening to one... Um, this week. And the guy said, as he said, I went to the theater and, and tried to find a value in theater and literature and education and the relationship with other men and all these different things that he's looking for. And he says he keeps coming up empty. But he didn't come to the church. I'm paraphrasing him here, but this is pretty close to a direct quote. Direct quote because a homosexual doesn't go to the church to find identity in the same way that a black person doesn't go to a KKK rally to find identity. Because the homosexual world, that's how they have seen us and, and portrayed us, and sometimes that's how we've portrayed ourselves, as an unsafe place. Now, the reality is we get to be safe. Now, we're not safe in the sense that we're not always going to agree. We've got to keep the lights on. We've still got to teach the truth, and we can't withhold that. Because that way, when someone runs to the end, when they run, like this gentleman did, and his story is fascinating because he just randomly runs into a Christian at a coffee shop, randomly, randomly has a conversation with this guy, and the guy invites him to church. Let's get back in the habit of that, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get back in the habit of inviting people into our lives, into our homes, into our churches, into relationship, uh, everybody out there, like that we, we learned the habit of doing that again. When was the last time you invited someone to church? And I don't just mean you're going like, well, they have to register. Like, that'd be weird. Like, no, no. Like, inviting people into your life, inviting people to church. This is what we've got to be doing. When we had our panel up here uh, a few uh, weeks ago, months ago, to talk with us about ethnicity and how we engage well with those issues as a church, they're, they're, the constant refrain was invite, involve, befriend, all these different things. Like This is still the answer to these different things that we've got. And we've got that answer because we don't have to live as beasts. I better move along. I'm, I'm really sidetracked here. Okay, so <clears throat> when human rulers in arrogance, we become like beasts. Human kingdoms devolve into zoos. We're just the animal kingdom versus God's redemptive power. Okay. 
Um, the failure of man, the redemption of God. The second thing that we do wrong with uh, prophecy on a regular basis is um, we've, we've, we use it to predict the future in a way that's meant to scare us, right? We, we, if you say, hey, if any Bible study teacher in the room, you know this. If you go, hey, um, what, would, what book would you guys like to study next? You always get the same one. What is it? Revelation. Everybody wants to study Revelation. Yes, what you, you think you do until you've actually done a good study of the book of Revelation, and then you're like, please, no, make it stop. Like, somewhere around verse thir- uh, chapter 13, you're like, can we go back to Galatians or Philippians? I'll even do John again. Could we do John again? Like, anything to get... Because it's so hard to study. It's such a beating to study through Revelation. Now, we should, but it's hard. Um, it's a difficult book. But why do we always want to study Revelation? I think for the same reason we go to scary movies. Is that, is that we want to study Revelation because we want to have that, that fear feeling of like, oh, they're going to, scorpions with sh- scorpions flying in the air shaped like people, they're going to get you. Like that's that whole same, like, oh no, beasts from the, and you, you just have that same response all the time. Hail falling from the sky. And, and, just, and we get that feeling and it, and it motivates us to want to dig a hole and fill it full of ammo or something. And like this whole, this picture, which again, I mean, that may be wise, but that's not because of what we read in prophecy. This whole Idea instead, prophecy is meant to have a very different effect on us. Let me show you. So, I want you to imagine, especially if you've never done this, it'll be easy for you. Imagine that I give you the instructions to drive to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Okay? Now, you've got no phone, you've got no GPS, you've got no maps, you've got nothing. I just say, I want you to drive to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And if you've never been, okay, I want you to imagine that I say, here's what I want you to do I want you to go up to I 20. Take a right, take the second exit into Tuscaloosa. Okay, take the second exit into Tuscaloosa. Don't take the first exit, take the second one. Now, what are you feeling? If you've never been there and you have no idea about driving, that kind of thing, what are you feeling? Anxious, right? You're very anxious. And you're going to be driving down the road, and you're going to realize you got sidetracked by the song you were listening to, and you've not seen the last, like, six exits. And you go, oh, no. What if one of those was an exit to Tuscaloosa? You might still be in Texas, but you don't know. Like you're going, I don't have any idea where am I supposed to. It would be a terrifying, exhausting journey. But what if I said this? What if I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to send you to Tuscaloosa, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to, as you get up on I-20, I want you to go towards Alabama, take a right. And after a while, you're going to come to a city with a whole bunch of concrete overpasses. And then weirdly, weirdly, in this city are a bunch of boats. Now, most of the boats aren't on the water. They're just boats, Okay. They're these boat casino things, and you're going to see them, and that's, you're going to see them, and they're going to stand out. You're going to be like, oh, that's weird, okay? And then you're going to drive for a while on arguably the worst roads you've ever driven on in your life. You're going to think you're on a concrete bridge the whole time. Thump, 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 right? It's unreal. By the way, don't speed. As long as you hear the roads doing that, do not speed. They'll get you, okay? So just thump, thump. Then you're going to come to a bridge, and it's a huge bridge. It's a massive bridge, impressive bridge, and you're going to go across this bridge, and then the roads are going to come become some of the best roads you've ever driven on in your life. And you're going to ride on those roads for a while, and then you're going to come to a state line, and at this state line, there's going to be this really nice visitor center. Go up to the visitor center, check it out. They'll give you a free soft drink, like just, and, and then you'll keep going, and a little while later, you'll start seeing signs for Tuscaloosa. Okay? Now, I still didn't give you distance. I still didn't give you time. But your experience is going to be totally different, right? You're going to be driving. Now, what's going to happen is you're going to start getting anxious. You're going to be driving about an hour, hour and a half, and you're going to start getting anxious. And you're going to go, oh, I, am I in the wrong place? Am I, I haven't seen that city. And then you're going to come to Shreveport. And you're going to go, well, what do you know? Boats just sitting out on the land. 
That's crazy. Wow. And then you're going to drive on these roads for a while. And you're going to go, this. hey, you know what? Now, what happens when you pull in and you see the boat sitting on the land? What happens to your anxiety? You go, oh, okay. He knew what he was talking about. I'm still on the right road, moving in the right direction. And the whole time you're driving on this road, as much as you hate it, there's a little bit of a reminder that you're going like, he said it would be like this. For great comfort in this. And you're going to come to a bridge, and you're going to see a bridge, and you're going to go, I wonder if this is the bridge he meant. That's a big bridge. I wonder if this is the bridge he meant. Maybe this is the bridge he meant. Do the roads get better? Not really. Maybe, maybe it's this bridge. I saw, I come across another big bridge, and I go like, hey, this is a big bridge. Maybe this is the bridge that he was talking about. It could be this one. Isn't this how we engage with prophecy? If we're not careful, that's the newspaper era. We start going, this must be the bridge. He said it was big and grand and I mean, it's kind of big and grand. Let's force that into the spot. And then you come to the bridge, right? And you go, oh, this bridge. There's no doubt. When you hit the Mississippi River Bridge, you know, oh, this is the bridge he meant. There's no question this is the bridge he meant. This is the one. You drive across it, then you go on roads like this for the next few hours that are perfect and beautiful, and then you come to the Alabama State Line, and there's this really nice visitor center there. Every one of these things, as you engage with it, you go, oh, yeah. Do you notice how this is the opposite of a horror movie? This is an opposite. When we use, when we use this translation, yeah, you start seeing the signs. Um, when, you, when we use the, the Bible and we interpret it as something that's meant to create fear and terror in us from a prophetic perspective, we're not doing it right. It's exactly the opposite purpose. Listen to what's said in 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm wrapping up here. I want to go here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 4.18. What a great verse. Now, you may go, I mean, you're kind of pulling a verse out of context there, aren't you? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Some of your Bibles will say comfort. Same word. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But here's the context, starting in verse 15. For we declare to you by word of the Lord that we who are alive and who have left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the, the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words." This is an eschatological um, section of Scripture. It's about the end times. This is an end times prophetic passage, and it ends with comfort one another with these. So as we go through this and we see the power of God, the sovereign Lord who knew and who knows and who will know. Now listen, the fact that God is sovereign doesn't mean we won't suffer. It doesn't even mean we won't die. It doesn't mean we won't be persecuted. It means that it will, none of it will get out of His hands and that His redemptive power will always be the final vote. In the end, the final step will be for God to, I have, man has failed and I have redeemed. And man has failed and I have redeemed. And man has failed and I have redeemed. When people ask about the future, here's my prediction, okay? You ready? Here's my prediction. Man will fail, God will redeem. That's what's going to happen in our individual lives. We find ourselves learning to live like beasts. And when we turn to God, He will pull us back into living as the spiritual beings He's made us. Man will fail and God will redeem. This is the role in prophecy. That we get to be motivated 
motivated to work urgently, to serve each other passionately, to reach out into our world as ambassadors, to invite them into a new kingdom, a better kingdom, a redemptive kingdom. That's what we're inviting people to be a part of. Make sure we're doing that. That we live in the peace of grace that comes from knowing a sovereign God who loves us more than we can even understand. Even if we suffer. Even when we suffer. That's what we can live and teach and tell. Is this message as his ambassadors.